are online, thank you for watching tonight. And we trust that things will go off seamlessly with the technology. Hope that it goes well tonight, as it does customarily, thanks to David Creech and Michael McMunn and all the others who work hard to make sure that happens. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to study the first three chapters of Genesis tonight. Um, you should have received, by way of email, maybe four to six days ago, an outline of which chapters we're covering each week. If you want a printed copy of that, there are still a couple of them on the ledge of the AV booth if you want to grab one of those on your way out. Um, if you want the PowerPoint slides either in print form uh, or in electronic form, let me know. I'll be happy to give those to you as well. Um, our goal before we go to God in prayer uh, in the study of Genesis is really to do kind of two things, at least my, my goal is. One is to have a refresher of material with which we are very familiar. Uh, lots of Genesis is very familiar to us. There are portions of Genesis that are not that familiar or that we kind of forget. Uh, who was this person and how are they related to this person and why does that matter in the future of Israel? Things like that that we're going to cover as well. But the second thing that I think that we can do in our study of Genesis together uh, is hopefully learn some new things. Maybe look at some new aspects as well. Maybe make some new discoveries because as you know... Anytime we study the Bible, we always find new stuff, new um, uh, people, new events, or look at them maybe in some different terms. So we're going to start there in just a moment. Uh, if you would go to God with me in prayer, we'll, we'll start out tonight. Father God, thank you for the kindness that you bestowed on us, for the opportunity to be together, and for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you, Father, for the resumption of children's classes for the fact that they are able to grow by uh, virtue of your word and the efforts of the many men and women who are at work teaching them as we speak. Bless them in their efforts, bless us in our study, and bless all of us as we're trying to do what you've asked us to do. In Jesus we pray, amen. All right. So uh, I believe there is something to be said about titles or subtitles, and so I decided to subtitle our study with the three S's. And I remember once when uh, a professor came into uh, class and he spent the first 20 minutes of class just talking about the title or what was on the board. And it was one of the most fascinating things. Now I won't be able to, to mimic Dr. Frederick and do what he was able to do, but I did choose the title purposely, The Seed, The Stories, The Salvation, uh, for us just to be thinking about as a theme as we develop the entire study. The seed is, I hope, obvious. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 3 a little bit later in our study and understand that at the very beginning of Genesis, including in the latter part of our study tonight, there is reference to the seed of woman. The stories are timeless. And by stories, I don't mean fictional fables, but rather the real accounts of what happened to people like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth, as we'll be talking about them over the next week or two. And then the salvation, because as we'll point out in our study tonight, about midway through our study, that which was bad 
the exodus from the garden turns out to be something that is very beneficial because of salvation and the broader picture. So we'll talk about that tonight. So let's just jump right into it. Um, and because we have a lot to cover, we're going to be covering an average of three to five chapters every week. So hopefully you'll have a chance to skim through the text. Chances are you're already familiar with chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. But by the time we get into the 20s and 30s and 40s, don't let your eyes glaze over. Uh, that's important stuff as well. And this class hopefully will be beneficial to all of us. If nothing else, I have found that there are free PowerPoints with moving uh, uh, projections, and I'm really excited about using those. The young people study a few weeks, so I used a moving PowerPoint, so I'm just fascinated by them. I, I'm fascinated by, by little things. All right, let's go ahead, though, and jump into chapter one. And um, it, it's, it's hard because I, I want to ask for feedback, and I know you maybe want to give feedback. Uh, are we equipped to do feedback tonight? Or, uh, okay, so we are. If you're comfortable with Michael or David or someone holding a microphone for you for the sake of limiting germ exposure, just raise your hand. Um, on other occasions, if you just kind of want to share uh, a brief comment, and then I'll repeat it back for the benefit of everyone listening. But what is Genesis 1 about? Just in, in a phrase or two, in a word or two. What is Genesis 1 about? Creation. Creation is the one big word that comes up when we think about not only chapters 1, but also chapters uh, 2, because this is the creation. So let's look. Pretend you are reading the Bible for the first time, and you read verse 1, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You go two words to the second word, and already you have a problem, at least as in the, in the eyes of the world, Right? Because what are you talking about? The. How can you talk about a beginning? How can you know that there was the beginning? Because after all, we struggle with people. And that's not just true for those in college and those in high school. But even those of us who are a little bit older, who've been out of school for a long time, or for some period of time, we still run into people who think that we are a little bit silly because we believe in the creation. That we believe in the Beginning. So I thought that was interesting. We can't go but two words into the Bible where already we have to sometimes be ready to do what uh, Bill Bain talked about on his, in his Sunday morning class, be ready to give a defense for the reason of the hope that is in us. So Genesis chapter 1 is about creation. Uh, how many days of creation are there? There are six of those. And the seventh of those is, of course, the day that the Lord rested. So one of the things that I wanted to point out is the idea of a belief in the validity of creation. We believe that what is written in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that these, we believe everything from Genesis 1 through 50, we believe that these things really happen. They aren't fictional, they aren't figurative, unless it's meant to be figurative. And there are places in the Bible where there's some figurative language used, but we believe that Genesis 1 is talking about six days of creation. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in just uh, a minute or two. But how do we know that the creation is valid? Well, there are a couple of things that people who are a lot smarter than me have pointed out that I thought was kind of interesting. One of those is the brevity of the creation story. It is very brief. You have chapter one, which works out to be all of about, what, 31 verses? 
chapter 2, which really is a different glimpse of creation, is not so much about creation, but it's, half of it is about man and woman. So you're limiting yourself to roughly 50 verses. Less than a page of this long book is dedicated to creation. Yes, I know that there's other passages that talk about creation elsewhere in the Bible. But my point being is that the fact that it's so matter-of-fact to the point, this is how it was done day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, God rested. We're moving on to the next story. We're moving on to the next piece of the puzzle. Tells us that this is real. If I was going to write a creation story, I'd probably try to come up with something really creative and maybe throw in a lot of different verbs and a lot of different nouns to make it sound very smart. And next thing you know, I've got a 35-page essay on creation. God does it in a matter of verses and says, this is how it was, this is how it is. Secondly, not just brevity, but Bible verification. The rest of the book conforms or comports to the account of the creation. Nowhere is there a contradiction later where the writer got it wrong about creation. So we see that in the Psalms. We even see that in the New Testament as we're going to reference a little bit tonight. And then the third thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that the beginning is with who? It's with God. In the beginning, God. So out of the first four words, three of them are very controversial. The beginning God, because the is the idea of there was, two, beginning. What do you mean about a beginning? After all, we just evolved over a period of time. Uh, and then four is God. There's an existence of God. If when, when man comes up with creation stories or with evolution stories, it is often where it is rooted in man, not rooted in God. So those three things kind of help us understand that this is real stuff, and we take it at face value, and we believe this stuff to be true. And again, that puts us in the vast minority of people in the world, but that's okay. We're okay to be in the minority because we'd rather be in the minority here rather than in the majority here and have it go awry. All right? So let's talk about those six days of creation. We'll talk about what happened on those particular days here in just a, a second or two. But I wanted to share just briefly that if you're not aware, there is controversy among some people who are Bible-believing as to whether or not we're talking about literal or figurative days. Now, we believe that we're talking about six 24-hour periods. Uh, there's a lot of places that we could go to in Scripture that would help understand that that's beyond the scope of our study tonight because we're trying to cover three chapters plus an introduction. Um, but Psalm 104 was interesting to me. If you want to go back and read that, it's a little bit lengthy, but particularly verses 5 through 8, where it talks about God forming the foundation of the world and, and bringing the curtains of clouds down and making the waters abundant and doing all the things that are found in Genesis chapter 1 as well. Um, what was the first thing that God created or that came onto the scene? Oh, by, and by the way, throughout the course of our 12 weeks together, we will play the game, Guess What Leland's Thinking. Uh, we played that in our college study a few, few weeks ago. Um, but this is not a trick question. What's the first thing that God has to say? Light. Light, right? And light is so fundamental to everything that is biblical, both in a literal sense 
and in a figurative sense. We know that Jesus is the light. He lights up the world. We know that we are to be lights, not hidden from the world. And the first thing that God comes across is, let there be light there in verse 3. And there was light. Um, what does God say at the conclusion of each of the creation days? Or, or, or what does Moses, the likely author, say that God remarked or said? It was good. In fact, every occasion, it was good. It was good. It was good. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but who can identify the first time in the Bible where God said it is not good? Chapter 2, man shall not be alone. He, he has man, Adam, as we're going to get into, but there's no Eve. There's no help me. There's no, there's no uh, helper for him. So we need to appreciate... Um, that these six days are literal. Um, let's talk about verse 26 for just a minute. That's a sermon or a study in and of itself. But verse 26 does need to be fleshed out just a little bit because this is cause for some confusion on the part of some. This is a verse that I remember being in college. One of the, the texts that we had to read for a class our sophomore year because uh, I went to a liberal arts college, which has its benefits and it has its huge drawbacks to it, right? And, uh, and one of the things was, see, here's a contradiction in the biblical story of monotheism, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying the Bible is contradicting itself on the idea of there being one God because verse 26 uses plural terms. So verse 26 God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, cattle, all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So sometimes Bible critics claim this is evidence that the Bible religion is like every other religion or pagan group steeped in polytheism. Uh, but what does the us mean there? Um, and... If, you, if this is more than just a statement or two, Michael will come to you. But again, I'll try to do my very best to repeat. What do we think about that us? And we can talk about that for 30 minutes, but let's talk about it for 30 seconds. Okay, a, a, a pointing to Jesus is one of the things that comes up. What else? And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just trying to flesh out some ideas here. We know that there's an existence of the Godhood or the Godhead. Where you have a father, where you have a son, and you have a Holy Spirit. Some have thought, in order to make sense of this, that God was speaking to creation. There's some oddity there. Uh, some have pointed out that the absence of Jesus, of the Messiah, uh, completely understood, would have made it hard to understand. Some have pointed to Job 38 and suggested that he was talking to um, heavenly bodies to angelic hosts. Um, I would have a problem with that just based on a study of angels that I did a few years ago. Uh, some have just said it's a form of language. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, verse 22, Behold, the man has come, become like one of us. 2 Samuel 24, 14, if you want to jot that down, is another phrase where you sometimes see... Um, a plural term used in a singular vein. Now, again, that's probably about all we're going to say on that. I do think largely we understand 
that we, we, we do know, we can agree that Jesus was not created, right? We all, we all agree on that, right? As one preacher says, nod your head like this, right? All right. So we, we don't believe that Jesus was created. We don't believe that God was created, the Father. We don't believe the Spirit was created. Um, so these are eternal beings. And we may make reference to Ephesians or not. I can't remember if I had that in my notes. Yes, I do. We'll come back to that later. Okay. Uh, last thing here on chapter 1. You say, man, he's going fast. Um, but I've already burned 15 minutes out of about 40. So you can see what we're up against here. Uh, notice the 1, 4, 2, 5, 3, 6, 7 pattern. Let's play the game. What's he thinking? Who can, what, what, what do I mean by that? I don't mean one-fourth, two-fifths, and three-sixths. I mean one-to-four, two-to-five, and three-to-six. And it's okay if you don't know. What I mean by that is what happened on day one? Let there be light, right? Okay. Day four, what was created? Sun and the moon, right? Or... Or a redefinition of the sun and the moon. We know that there was light, but we also know that he puts the greater light and the lesser light, right? Okay, so forget about that for a second. That's one to four. Two to five. What happened on day two? Firmament. Firmament, water, separation of sky, all that kind of stuff. And then day five, what's going to live in the water, what's going to live in the sky are the fish and the fowl. Day three is the drying up of the land or the idea of creating dry land or instilling dry land. Day six, which corresponds to it, is what's going to live on the land. So days one, two, and three are light, sea, sky, land. And then days four, five, and six are the things that live in those particular venues. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So if you, if I was teaching this for a longer period of time, I would give you this. I know this makes no sense to you, but in my notes, what I have is all those things listed out. And then day seven is all by itself. Why? God rest. So a skeptic comes to you and says, you're telling me that your God got tired? How are you going to answer that? Because there, I, think there's, I think that's a good thing to answer because people do say that from time to time. But how do we answer that? Rest means more than just... Okay. More, more than, yeah, there's something here more than just the idea, phew, I'm exhausted from creating six days, right? There's something more than that. It's also a pattern that God is going to flesh out later in the text, right? That we're going to understand. Uh, there's a lot of different lessons that we can learn from it. If nothing else, day seven stands by itself that God is set alone, is special, uh, and it leads to the necessity of a New Testament worship pattern to replace the Old Testament worship as well. That goes into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy a little bit. Okay? All right, let's go ahead and move on to chapter 2. We'll try to save at least two to three minutes for last-minute comments. But I want to go ahead and jump into to chapter 2, and I have two slides for that. Uh, some have suggested... Let's go put up all three of these things here. Uh, some have suggested, again, uh, when I, I still remember when I was in Martindale Hall, uh, the guy next to me was reading Genesis 1 and 2, and he says, see, chapter 1 shows creation this way, chapter 2 shows creation another way, so there's a contradiction in the Bible. So you guys are a bunch of crazy people for following the Bible, talking about me and others. 
So how do we, I've already given the answer a little bit, but how, do you, how does chapter 2 enhance or reflect on chapter 1? Especially the first half of chapter 2. Such that there's no contradiction. Correct. Uh, think, think, my what? So, uh, a flashback. I like that word to the things that happened, particularly on day six. So, if I think it's fair to say, I think I think it's okay to say, what was what was the quintessential creation day, day six? Because that's where God makes man in His image. He doesn't make anything else in His image except made. No, I was thinking about my dog. Uh, who is pretty special. But even he's not created in God's image, right? Okay, so that was just a joke. Uh, so we need to appreciate that day six is important, the creation of man, and that he comes back and gives this kind of bottom-up or down-up view as opposed to a cosmic up-down view of creation. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting in chapter two is uh, here, and I'm, I'm looking at multiple pages of notes that I have, is in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God, what's the word for God in chapter 1, verse 1? What's the Hebrew word? And pronunciation doesn't matter. Elohim, right? So, and E-L is important. It's the root, E-L-O-H-I-M. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. Then you get over to chapter 2 in verse 4, and in my Bible, and probably in your Bible, it doesn't say just G-O-D, does it not? What does it say in, in chapter 2 and verse 4 in at least English? Lord. It says Lord God, and in my Bible, in your Bible, probably L-O-R-D is all capitalized. People have that, some of you have that in your Bibles? Yeah, okay, good. All right, so because that's a different term. That is being used. What is that term there? So Elohim is used in Genesis 1, verse 1, and throughout Genesis 1 where it talks about God saying this and God doing this. Um, what else is found uh, in, what, what is chapter 2, verse 4? That is Yahweh. Uh, or the word from which we get Jehovah. Uh, we talked about about. Seven months ago, Jehovah Jireh, the idea of God providing both in the past and in the future, uh, a term that was used in Genesis 22 by Abraham when he says the Lord will provide, he's saying Yahweh is going to provide. Or, and this is where you get the, uh, the word Jehovah from that we sometimes use. Interestingly enough, I mentioned not, someone sent me a picture of the count from Sesame Street on email yesterday. <laughs> Because I made reference to counting. Uh, 2,000 times Elohim is used, roughly. I didn't count uh, I just trusted someone else counting for me. But if you want to count it this week, you can go right ahead and report back. And you cannot use Google. You've got to count them yourself. Mark, 6,500. So three times plus as many, the word Yahweh is used. It's the more familiar usage of the Lord God in what we call the Old Testament. Um, there are other names of God that are used in Genesis and found throughout the Old Testament. Um, bonus points to someone that can identify one of them. Bonus points mean nothing, by the way. Someone said El Shaddai, right? I heard that. 
Adonai, I heard someone say that. So there are other terms that are used, El Shaddai, Adonai, El Elyon, uh, which means most high God. That final one is used in the book of Psalms a lot. It is used as the idea of the most high God to whom we praise. And that makes sense because David or whoever is writing the Psalms is, is doing a lot of this praising that God is the most high. Uh, the, and again, it's also found in Genesis 14, 18. And Adonai, which means Lord, is Genesis 52. Uh, anybody familiar with the song El Shaddai? Yeah, a few people are familiar with the song El Shaddai. It's a really neat song. Um, the words of it, and it uses different terms of God. Okay? Uh, let's talk about man, because that is the center of the creation, even though it's not day three or day four, which would be the center. It's day six. It's, it's the... Um, Climactic point of creation, Genesis 2. Adam. Um, Adam is created. What is Adam created from? And our, our six-year-olds can tell us. What was he created from? Created from dust. And the Hebrew word for dust or dirt is Adamah. And so, at least in the, in the English, they didn't write the way we did. Of course, right? They wrote with a different alphabet. Uh, but we understand that. But the idea of Adamah is the idea of dirt or earth. And so he calls his name Adam, and he makes him the first uh, character ever created in the world. Adam's wife's name, Eve, we know that her name is given uh, actual terminology or actual meaning as the mother of, of individuals, um, as a helper, how was she made from the rib, from the side? Is, is there something to, uh, to be said about that? There's a, there's a lot of things we could say about that. But what is so important about being created from the rib? There's no right answer. They're all the same. Okay, similarities, right? We know that a human male and a human female have a lot of similarities to them, such that we can look and say, well, that's different than a bird or a fish or an animal. There are similarities between them, absolutely. There's key differences because God created them to be different, and he made Eve to be a helper. Why did God... And we talked about this, but why did God create woman? To be a helper. So here's one of the things I hadn't thought about until maybe a few years ago. Some point or not, I thought, why didn't I think about that? We know that Eve is the helper to Adam, but by definition, that means that Adam has to be a helper to Eve, right? I mean, the two aren't going to be at odds with one another. God is making them as complementary individuals here. Um, let's talk about... Um, Let's read a little bit here in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2. Let's read just a couple of verses here down through, not the end of the chapter, but almost. Uh, Lord God said, it is not good. Again, that's the first time he's made that statement. Not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground of the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, whatever Adam called each living creature. That was his name. So Adam gave, gave his names to everything. Verse 21. The Lord God 
caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. The rib which he, he took, he made into a woman, and he brought her into the man. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There in verse 23. Um, verse 24 is then the first reference to, even though it doesn't use the word marriage, here's the first marriage or the union. Which incidentally, think about it from this perspective, the oldest institution in the history of humanity is not the church. Not saying the church isn't important, don't misquote me. But the oldest institution is the family or marriage, right? So that's why we celebrate when people choose to get married. Okay. So I made reference to hardware on Sunday morning, and someone thought that someone had a hand transplant. We've got women who are now wearing these gigantic rings. They're, they're walking lopsided because they're weighed down by their new engagement rings. We're glad for them, though. All right, there's your shout out for tonight. All right, so let's talk about that union. Verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be, the new King James says, be joined. What do you have in your Bibles? Especially those of you that are reading from the ASV or the new King James. You have a C word, right? What word do you have? Cleave. You have cleave. What does that word cleave mean? Because I, and I know it means joined together, but go a little bit further with that. There's more than just being joined together. Desperately hanging on to. De I love that. Desperately hanging on to. So we'll get back to that. But number two is the idea of, of a desperate hanging on to. A glue that is so strong that man... What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 19? Should not put it asunder. Should not be able to put it asunder. Or should not put it asunder, right? Uh, and in fact, I think I put up there Matthew chapter 19. This is the place that Jesus goes to. Of all the places that Jesus could have gone to when he was asked about the subject of marriage, he says, Genesis chapter 2. Open your Bibles. Genesis 2, Jesus said. But he went back to Matthew, or he went back to Genesis 2. And he says, from the beginning, from the very beginning, he used the same phrase, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. From the beginning, it was not so that you could get this certificate of divorce and put a woman away for just any cause. He says, that's not what it was designed to be. Um, we need to understand that this union is a... is... is is designed to be a permanent union. That's the way that God designed it. Now, Jesus does go on. This is beyond the scope of our study. Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 5 and talks about the exception to the rule, uh, uh, the exception to the clause uh, for a divorce being permitted. But we need to appreciate that this is the marriage plan. First of all, there has to be a leaving and there has to be a cleave. What happens in a marriage if you cleave but you don't leave? You have problems, right? As the old preachers would say, you've got to cut the apron strings, right? So what happens if you leave but you don't cleave? Well, 
You got more problems. I'm not sure that either one is better than the other. Both are bad. So there needs to be a leaving and there must be a cleaving in this particular process. All right? Um, anything else on chapter two, real quickly, before we spend our last 12 minutes in chapter three? All right. Let's go ahead in chapter three. I promise to leave you two minutes for comments if, if we, we need to get into that. Let's go ahead and get into Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter 3 starts with what word? Now. Now is kind of like a fancy however or transition, but something bad is about to happen. Everything has been pretty, pretty good. Not pretty good. Everything's been great up to this point. The only thing that's not been good is that man was alone and God had this plan for that. All right. So then we get to chapter 3 and the very first word is now. Now who? The serpent, the devil, Satan, he goes by different terms, but at least in most of our Bibles, the word that is used is, is that of a serpent. I thought it was interesting, I was doing a little bit of research, doing a little bit of reading, that a serpent is not just considered as this symbol of ugliness and scariness and evil to us in a Christian culture, but other cultures around the world have always looked at, not always, but have frequently looked at serpents as being symbolic of that which was evil or wrong. Um, the serpent comes to Eve, and you can say he comes to Adam and Eve because Adam gets the news. We know that he does. Uh, but the serpent makes a couple of statements. There are two statements that are made. What are those statements? What's statement number one? As God indeed said. Oh, oh okay. Yes. Well, follow that up with what comes right after that. You shall not eat of every tree. Okay. And if you do, verse four is the, the, the book, book of Genesis is a book of firsts, right? First man, first woman, first child, first murder, first polygamist we're going to talk about next week. Uh, first a lot of things. The first lie is in chapter three and verse four. And we know... That who is the father of all lies, according to the New Testament? Satan. So you will not die. That's a L-I-E lie, right? What's the other statement that he, he makes here? He says, he says, God doesn't want you to eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden because in the day that you do, what's going to happen? You'll be like God. You're going to be, you're going to have his knowledge. Is there, okay, and please, I, I hope that I don't die in the next three minutes. I don't mind dying after that, but I want to be able to fully explain myself in these three minutes. So if something happens, don't use this at my funeral. Is there some truth to you will not die? Yeah, I see people nodding their head, yes. Is there some truth to you will become like God? I see a couple of heads nodding, and it's not a trick question. There's a little bit of truth there in the sense that what kind of death are we talking about? And Go ahead. I heard a number of people say spiritual death. Eve did not take a bite of the fruit. By the way, what fruit was it? We don't know, right? Uh, the Latin uses a word that is similar to apple. That's where the idea of the apple blossoms from. <laughs> Make that up right there. That's good shape, wasn't it? Uh, uh, actually, it wasn't an apple 
it was a pair that killed him. P-A-I-R. <laughs> I didn't make that up. That I stole that from somebody. But the fruit, she did not bite from the fruit and then fall over dead. She lived on to have children, to have a life, and to live for, what, 900-some years? So she didn't die. But she did die, right? You will become like I will talk about that here in just a, a second or two. I, I think we have time here. Okay, so what's the judgment? There is a series of judgments that are given to three different characters because you have three parties here that are part of this ugly scene. Uh, what's going to happen? Who, who, to whom does God address judgment first? The serpent. Very good. And what does he say to the serpent in, in, in so many words? Nobody's going to like you. You're going to be a reproach. You're going to crawl upon the earth. That crawling in the dust is going to represent his character because when you think about shaking the dust off of your feet, a very New Testament uh, concept, it's the idea of moving on to something that is better uh, because this is worse. And in fact, he is the worst. And so in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. If you like underlining things in your Bible, the word seed there is so important. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So as we think about that, uh, this crawling or slithering seems to be some estimate of a testimony to his character and his place or his reputation. Okay, then he addresses who or whom? To whom does he speak next? Speaks to Eve, right? And what does he say to Eve in, in so many words? I think someone says something about childbirth, right? So childbirth pain uh, that they were going to be associated with that. We can talk about that a little bit more if we have time. Um, and then the last thing is he speaks, God speaks to Adam, and he says, in pain you shall eat. If you look at that very literally, the irony is because Adam ate, now he would have pain in eating. So think about that. Because of his choice to give in to the passing pleasure of sin, Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 10, uh, where Moses is referenced, uh, there's a similarity with the choice that he's making here, passing pleasure, and then, the, like we talk about, we'd rather be in the minority here and be in heaven than be in the majority here and not be in heaven, right? Um, and so... What ends up ultimately happening at the conclusion of chapter 3? Driven out of the garden. They are driven out of the garden. The angel is there to guard. Uh, I remember as a young boy, this really bothered me in Bible class, the idea of the angel there with a sword saying, you're not going to come in. That just scared me, the idea that that was the punishment for them. Um, removal from the garden as being a thing necessary for life. What am I talking about there? Let's, 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 on a serious note, what am, I, what am I saying there? Because of what they did, it created the need for Christ. Absolutely. When, uh, because of what happened, the need for Christ, when, and be careful how you answer this, when did God 
engineer that plan? Before the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, right? So, again, people who are skeptics of the Bible or creationism or they think that you and I are a little bit goofy because of our belief in the Bible, they will say, God goofed. God messed it up. Now he's got to create plan B. Jesus is not plan B. That's probably one of the most idiotic things you could say is that Jesus is plan B. He's not. He was God's plan, as Jonathan said, from before the foundation of the world. Um, I want to spend just a, a quick minute in looking at New Testament passages. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. And I mentioned that we would look at Galatians 3 as we wrap up here in the next, uh, looks like, four minutes. Galatians chapter 3, you already probably know where I'm going. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become, this is Galatians 3.13, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And then drop down to verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed, and in my Bible, seed is not only singular, but it has a big capital S associated with it. Were the promises made, he does not say, and his seeds, plural with a little s, as of many, but as of one, quote, and to your seed, direct quote from Genesis chapter 3 in the text that we just read from. So, note that Christ becomes the curse for us, but note also that the seed is referenced in verses 16 and then on down through basically verses 18 and 19. And then incidentally, he starts talking about baptism or continues talking about baptism on that particular account. And then this is what Jonathan said, if you wanted to jot down Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Remember that this is before creation that God had this plan in, in, uh, in order for people to be able to have redemption. All right. Um, we're going to close with some observations and lessons, but we've got 90 seconds to 120 other thoughts, things that we have left out. And by the way, if we have left something out, bring it to my attention. If you think we really need to talk about this, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not skipping something because I don't want to talk about it. I'm just trying to be expeditious in our time. Yes? Just, just one other observation or question. That Hang on just a second. Microphone's coming to you. Give it five seconds. Thank you. Uh, one other question I thought I've heard in the past in regards to the um, for the foundations of the earth was well then was man put in a no win situation in the beginning if God had already made plans and preparations for Christ then man had no hope in the beginning so what would that yeah well, that's so so that's the argument that I, I like the, the way you put it a no win situation God puts man in the garden he's, he's doomed man to sin because he knows he's going to so how do we answer that and that may we may need to reflect on that over the next week. But that's a very good question because people are going to bring that up. Does someone have something that you say, I, I, I think I could... You go back to uh, man has choice. Sure. We know that uh, Nathan just used the idea of free will. We know that from the beginning, God has created men with free will. That's absolutely the case. That was the case not only with Adam and Eve, but it was the case with, with Job, who shares with them this patriarch uh, period of time. Absolutely. 
other things that we and and um, I can't talk about this. Um, other things that we didn't cover or that you want to mention here in our final couple minutes. Excellent, thank you. All right. Um, why do we study Genesis? Well, we study Genesis because Romans 15.4 tells us to study Genesis. And that's true. The things which were written before were written for our learning. But let me suggest, and I'm going to try to do this at the conclusion of all 12 of our sessions together. Um, and that is uh, three or four things that we learned. Number one, never apologize for creation or for creationism or for the belief in creation. We don't need to say, you know, I'm sorry, but I believe the Bible. No, don't say you're sorry. It's okay to say you're sorry if you hurt someone's feelings, but don't say you're sorry for believing in the Bible. Don't ever apologize for being a Christian. Don't ever apologize for believing this book. We believe it. We're standing on it. not saying be a jerk about it and trying to be mean to others, but no, I believe this. I actually do believe this, and I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the Bible is all about the Lord God in the same way our lives are to be all about the Lord God. We're going to see Jehovah 6,500 times in the Old Testament. We're going to see it a bunch in Genesis anytime the Lord God is referenced. Thirdly, marriage is perfectly designed by God and cannot be improved on by man. So that goes all about Genesis 2.24. Marriage is perfect, the way it is designed. And we cannot improve on it by changing the definition of it, by changing the parties who are involved, by making exceptions to the rules. Marriage is, is, is wonderful. Uh, and that's why and on a very serious, I get serious sometimes, uh, but on a very serious level, we do celebrate people who choose to get married because that's, that's the plan uh, that God has for individuals who choose to follow that particular path. Um, uh, of having a help me with it. And then fourthly, God promises redemption through the Messiah. Remember we started with the seed? We're ending with the seed. We're going to talk about the seed a lot. The idea that throughout Genesis is woven this theme of the seed, Jesus the Christ. All right, we're out of time. We're going to go ahead and stop there. We'll let uh, the younger people and then the a little bit older than younger teachers come in as well. Thank you all for your kind attention tonight.